Uh, my, my first thought is that I'm, I'm impressed that you're here uh, this afternoon, but I was even trying to talk Greg out of even having the service, but uh, in all seriousness, I'm, I'm real honored to be here with you. I want to start with some scripture that normally would be read during the Christmas season, but I think you'll see that it has real pertinence to what I want to share with you uh, today. It comes from the book of Matthew, the first chapter, verses 20 and 21, and it's just when Joseph has learned that he is going to be a father, and, but in reality he realizes that Mary is pregnant and he is not the true father. And it says in the scripture that he was going to send her away because he was a righteous man. And as you well may remember, that night in a dream an angel appears and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And one of the things that you recognize right off, that before he is even born... Jesus' mission is already well established. In fact, if you go back 700 years, the prophet Isaiah tells us how Jesus, in fact, would save us. It says, by being pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And then we're told God will cause the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. And so this plan, this mission that Jesus had assigned to him had been planned long ago with great faithfulness. But I want to go back to that uh, phrase, he will save his people from their sin. You know that word save, it strikes me, that word save makes some people feel uncomfortable. The idea of being saved it sounds like something that maybe a, a street evangelist would use. You know, are you saved, brother? You know, more modern intellectual people prefer words like redeemed. I'm redeemed. Or my sins have been atoned for. Or simply, I am forgiven. You now these seem to be more proper for modern people. But if you read through the New Testament, there's another word that I really love that I think captures what Jesus has really done for us. And it's the Greek word, it's rume, which literally means to rescue and set free. To rescue and set free. Listen to what the Apostle Paul, he's the one that probably uses this word more than anyone. Two different parts of Scripture. First is Colossians 1, 13 and 14. It says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And then in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10, 
listen to Paul says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. So Jesus comes to us, or came to us, on a rescue mission. I shared this scripture a number of years ago with my children. And my daughter, who was around seven at the time, reflected on that word rescue. And she says, Dad, if Jesus has to come rescue us, it must mean that we're in big trouble. And I smiled and I said, well, honey, yeah, I guess you could say that we are because of our sinfulness. Author Donald Miller, in one of his books, writes a very, or shares a very interesting story about a rescue that took place here, or really, I guess you could say over in the Middle East, involving some hostages who were Americans. I'm going to read to you from the text. It says, There are a group of Navy SEALs that were performing a covert operation to free some hostages somewhere in the Middle East. They flew in by helicopter to a secluded building. They made their way to the compound and stormed into the room where the hostages had been in prison for months. The room was filthy and dark. The hostages were curled up in a corner, terrified when the SEALs entered the room. They heard the gasp of the hostages. And they stood at the door and called to the prisoners, telling them they were Americans. The seals asked the hostages to follow them, but the hostages wouldn't. They sat there on the floor and hid their eyes in fear. They were not of healthy mind and didn't believe their rescuers were really Americans. The seals stood there not knowing what to do. They couldn't possibly carry everybody out. And so one of the seals got an idea. He put down his weapon, took off his helmet, and curled up tightly next to the other hostages. Getting so close, his body was touching some of theirs. He softened the look on his face and put his arms around them. He was trying to show them that he was one of them. None of the prison guards would have done this. He stayed there for a little while until some of the hostages started to look at him, finally meeting his eyes. The Navy SEAL whispered that they were Americans and they were there to rescue them. Will you follow us? He said. The hero stood to his feet and one of the hostages did the same. And then another. And then another. Until all of them were willing to go. The story ends with all the hostages safe on an American aircraft carrier. And Miller shares that, you know, so many people see the God of the Bible as nothing but an angry, judgmental, wrathful God. But instead, we should see him more like a Navy SEAL. One of these Navy SEALs who's come, in fact, to rescue us from God's wrath. And of course, the way he's done this is that Christ has absorbed God's wrath himself when he went to the cross. And then Miller says that the decision to follow Jesus 
It is very much like the decision that these hostages had to make to follow these seals. And I think if, as you reflect on that, that every one of us would agree that if these hostages had not gotten up and followed these, these seals, that they were crazy. That they had truly lost their minds if they said, no, I want to stay here. And I share this because in the work that I do, it's a men's ministry, and people ask me all the time, why do you work only with men? And my response, and I'm dead serious, is that women just are a lot healthier than men. And they are in so many ways. But in the men that I work with at the center, I see them all the time say no to Christ. No to the rescue that He offers us. And you may wonder, why would anyone say no to Jesus? Well, I've given a lot of thought to this. And one of my first recognitions is that so many people in our culture here in Birmingham, Alabama, in the deep south, in the Bible Belt, so many people don't truly understand the gospel message. They have no idea that their lives are in danger, their souls are in danger. We do what's called an investigative Bible study. It's a five-week study for men who are inquisitive about the Christian faith, who might be searching, or who really might realize they've gotten to a point in their lives that I really don't understand this stuff. And so we will go through, it's a five-week study. It's one of my, the most favorite things that I do with a man. And we very slowly, very thoroughly go through the gospel message. And I've had, I just had a guy recently look me in the face with this unbelievable expression and say, I have never heard this in my entire life. And so I guess my first reaction is to, to realize that, that some people don't realize that they need to be rescued. They live their lives as if everything is okay. And I think this is obviously one of the great missions of the church. And really of all of us as believers. Is to let people know that they are in danger. And that there is one who has come to rescue them. But what's even harder to believe is that I've seen men who go through this study and they say, I get it. I understand it. But no thanks. I'm just really not interested. And I've often wondered in their heart of hearts, why is that? And it struck me in reading a very short passage in the, in the book of Romans that Paul nails this. In Romans 2.5, he says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation in the righteous judgment of God. And so what I've concluded is that there is a battle that goes on in our hearts. We have stubborn hearts. We have unrepentant hearts. And it strikes me that word repent and repentance 
is another word that makes people uncomfortable. For me, for years, I had no idea what it meant. And yet I knew John the Baptist used it a lot, telling people, yelling out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. But you know, the word repent and repentance is used 56 times in the New Testament. It's a central teaching, clearly, of the New Testament. For instance, in 2 Peter 3.9, it says, God does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. When the Apostle Paul is finishing up his famous sermon at Mars Hill, in Acts 17.30, he says, God is declaring for all people everywhere to repent. And then in Luke chapter 24, verse 47, Jesus is the risen Christ. He is about to leave and depart for the final time. He's giving the final instruction to his men and he says, this is the message you'll take out into the world. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But what is this word repentance? I mean, what does it really mean? Well, it comes from a Greek word, metanoia which means to change your mind or your purpose. But what it literally means is to turn or change course. To turn from self and my will and be willing to, to turn to God and His will. C.S. Lewis, I think, gives some great insight into this doctrine of repentance in his great book, Mere Christianity. You see, Lewis saw human beings as people who chart their own course, go their own way, and in the process, without realizing it, they are digging themselves a hole, and they fall into the hole, and they don't know how to get out. And he asked the question, now what was this sort of hole that man has gotten himself into? He had tried to set up his own to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of our hole. And this process of surrender... This movement full speed astern is what Christians call repentance. You see what Lewis is saying? It's, it's the process of surrender. It's surrendering your heart to Christ. And this is what I find most people don't want to do. They want to believe in Him. They want Him to bless them. But no one really wants to surrender, to repent. And as one man once told me when we were finished this investigative study, he said to me, I'm not going to surrender my life to anyone. One of the, the great philosophical thinkers of the last century was a guy, I've read some of his work, he is now deceased. His name was Mortimer Adler. He taught at Columbia, the University of Chicago. He helped found the Aspen Institute. 
He was the co-editor of the 55-volume series, The Great Books of the Western World. I went to Google the other night, just, just counted, He's written 50, he wrote 52 books himself. And he described himself most of his life as a godless pagan. And then at the age of 82, he became a Christian. He joined the Episcopal Church. And he lived to be 98. And being a thinker, he reflected a lot back on his life. And he said, you know, as I look back, I realize there were a number of times that I really thought about becoming a Christian. He said, but I realize that I didn't because I did not want to live the Christian life. I wanted to live for myself. Adler saying, I refuse to repent. And these are his own words. Listen to what he said. This is a quote. The decision to become a Christian lies in the state of one's heart and one's will, not in the state of one's mind. What he was saying was his atheism was not intellectually driven. It came down to how he wanted to live his life. I was reading in John Stott's classic book, Basic Christianity, and he tells of a discussion he had with a young man who had grown up in the Anglican church, but at some point had rejected the faith and for some reason had come to, to talk with John Stott. And they spoke for a great deal of time about the all, and went over and, 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 and Stott addressed all of the objections this young man had towards the faith. And then finally Stott stopped and asked him, he said, young man, let me ask you a question. If I could satisfactorily answer all your objectives and all your questions, would you return to the church and would you surrender your life to Christ? And the young man sat there silently for a while and then blushed. And he said, no, I wouldn't. And Stott again said, this young man didn't have an intellectual problem. He had a heart problem. He had an unrepentant heart. And I think probably the most powerful illustration that I could share with you on this comes from the psychiatrist Scott Peck, author of the best-selling book, The Road Less Traveled. He had a patient whose name was Charlene. And Charlene was struggling with depression. She kept saying over and over when they would meet, life is just so meaningless. And as he probed, he says, that he discovered that she apparently had grown up in the church. And as Peck put it, had a very well-developed religious worldview. So he finally asked her, why didn't her beliefs make a difference to this sense of meaninglessness that seemed to be so pervasive in her life and in her thinking? And when he asked her this, he said, she sat there silently for a while. And then with this incredible admission, exploded 
and said, I cannot do it. There's no room in that for me in that. That would be my death. I don't want to live for God, she said. I will not live for Him. I want to live for me. For my own sake. Now, I don't know about you, but I think what you see here is an incredibly honest woman. And I think it's a picture of the human heart that doesn't want to repent. That refuses to surrender. Why? Because I want to live for me. And so, in the 14 years of the work that I've been doing at the center, I've come to realize that modern secular people, in, in many ways, really are like this woman, Charlene. They see Christianity as being too costly, too absolute. That Jesus wants too much of a commitment out of me. And this is what G.K. Chesterton said, the problem people have with Christianity is not that it's been tried and found wanting, but that it's been found difficult and left untried. And this is why people refuse the rescue that Jesus offers all of us. Now I want to close by just sharing with you an insight that C.S. Lewis had on this. I think most of you probably are familiar with him, or at least that name. He was born in 1898, and for 31 years he claimed to be an atheist, until at the age of 31 he concluded that there was a God out there. And then two years later, he concluded that Jesus was that God. And he says, I realized when I got to that point that I wasn't looking to believe in a set of doctrines. But what I had come to the conclusion is, is that I was to put my faith into a person. Not a set of doctrines, a person. Jesus. And of course, he was a brilliant man and a great thinker. And he concluded on his own, when he came, when he began to recognize that Jesus was the Christ, he said, I realized that Jesus also demanded my complete surrender. As Lewis himself said, Jesus' Jesus's demand was simply my all. And he says, I realized there's a very good reason and a logical reason for this. Because he, Jesus, uh, Lewis recognized that Jesus was a king. And not only was he a king, he was the king of all kings. And what's so incredible was that not only was he a king, but that he was a king that went and hung on a cross. I mean, if you really think about it, that is mind-boggling. And so it dawned on C.S. Lewis that you don't negotiate with a king on how you're going to conduct your affairs and live your life. You lay down your arms and you serve Him with your life. And if you think about it, when we consider that Christ gave Himself so utterly to us at the cross, how can we not utterly give ourselves to Him?
And so I'll leave you with this question. Is Jesus your king? Is he the king of your life? And if he's not, it's because we have made the decision to choose some other king and to give our loyalty to him. It might be wealth, it might be prestige, it might be pleasure. But this is what I think we all need to know. That all other kings will enslave us and ultimately will leave you empty and unfulfilled. But when Jesus rules in a person's life, there is harmony, there is freedom, and there is peace. As the Apostle Paul said it, in Christ we have been made complete. And for this reason, Jesus is the only legitimate king to whom we should surrender our lives to. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have sent your son Jesus, the king of all kings, to go and hang on a cross for us, to be pierced through for our transgression, to be crushed for our iniquities. And we, when we give that consideration, Lord, there shouldn't be anything that we wouldn't be willing to do for you, particularly to repent and surrender and follow you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.